Um, over my lifetime, I've learnt, I think, many times over what seems to be a law of the universe, and that is that pride goes before a fall. I know even footy players like that. Um, one player, after last weekend's first round, uh, when they had a big win, it wasn't your team, it was the Eels, but he said, uh, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because as soon as you do this, we know we'll get knocked down. Um, I think it is a law of the universe. We get too uppity and something happens to pull us down a peg or two. In books and movies, and of course soapies, we enjoy seeing proud and conceited and arrogant characters uh, eventually get their comeuppance. We Aussies have a bit of a reputation for knocking down our tall poppies, especially if they start to sound a bit full of themselves. Uh, we don't like it when people get aloof, do we? Uh, or arrogant. We like people to be down to earth, and I think that's a good thing. Even our politicians, we like them to be down to earth, our rich and famous, and even our royals. Humility is, no doubt, an attractive virtue, and particularly important and appropriate for Christian believers, and Philippians 2 will teach us why. Humility's been a virtue for a long time. You can go back, um, well, close to 3,000 years to the Proverbs, and in chapter 16 it says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. In Philippians, St Paul's seeking to get these new believers to work a little bit better in unity. Um, we learn later in the letter in this chapter as well that there's been a fair degree of grumbling going on. And Paul knows they will do um, a good job, a better job of growing the local church uh, if they can be humble together and foster unity. And St Paul is aware, um, you might remember last week, that uh, we learnt that Philippi was a very proud Roman city and maybe that culture of pride had gone from the secular city uh, into the Christian church and they hadn't quite sorted that one out. So a good shot of humility will help them forge a stronger unity and a humble and unified family of believers will be a great place for people to be and a good witness to those outside the church. Now, I might just flag where the sermon's going because these relatively young believers, uh, to help them know what humility is, uh, what it will look like in their relationships with each other, Paul points in verses 6 to 11 to the example of Jesus himself. And so follows in that example one of the most powerful theological statements in the whole Bible, a statement revealing the depth of God's love for people in the absolute humiliation of Jesus and then in his consequential wonderful exaltation. Now, humility is a vital virtue in its own right, but it's also a virtue that will give birth to many other good things that should be part of a church family's life. A lot of other really good things will flourish here at your church, in any church, but here at All Saints, if we can do well, in the virtue of humility. 
And in the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2, St Paul offers a kind of mini-vision of sorts. In his mind's eye, he sees um, a better way for this group to grow. I mean, in reality, churches are mostly trying to overcome deficits of some kind. Things like disunity, they sort of seem to creep in everywhere, don't they? Grumbling happens, people feel they haven't been cared, cared about properly, um, there's gossip going on, and uh, so these sort of things go on. There's a whole grab bag of common human shortcomings. But in verses 1 to 5, Paul dreams of something much better for the Philippian church, and he sows this little mini-vision. He talks about encouragement. To be in Christ means we will have at least some level of personal, intimate encouragement uh, from the Holy Spirit. And that's part of what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, the word for the Holy Spirit, or one of the words, is the paraclete. Para meaning he comes alongside and clete related to the word that he speaks, words of hope and encouragement and comfort into our lives and guidance. He will also have experienced, uh, the Christian, Paul says, comfort and love at particular times of anxiety and need. We should experience what he calls common fellowship or sharing in the spirit. Some of us are more open to others. Some of us are a bit cautious about more intimate sharing our lives. But Paul mentions it here as a common thing. That is, it's a normal, good and helpful thing to do. Perhaps it happens, it's most likely to happen in when we're in little groups praying for each other uh, and doing Bible study. And the fourth thing that Paul mentions uh, says we shouldn't be strangers to having experienced tenderness and compassion from our God, from our Saviour, from the Holy Spirit. In fact, in all four of these benefits that we have received, there is a strong sense that these four blessings should be our expressions then, in turn, for others. Having received this kind of support from the Holy Spirit, we should in turn be looking for opportunities to serve our brothers and sisters in the same way. A fellow named Thomas Akempis a long while ago wrote, wrote a great book called The Imitation of Christ. And so we're, we're, by doing this, we are imitating Christ in terms of our comfort, encouragement, our sharing in the spirit, our tenderness and compassion. So that's the first question we're being asked tonight, I think. How well are we doing in those areas? Now I think maybe Paul got to this point in his letter and as he reflected on the church at Philippi I think it's fair to say that he became aware of their need for greater unity. There was grumbling as I said earlier, hence their need for humility. This is what he says in verses 2 to 5, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Um, not looking to your own interests, oh, so rather in humility. This is a challenge, isn't it? Value others above yourselves. And it's just like the second commandment, isn't it? Love your neighbour as yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset that Jesus had. So it seems that a light's been turned on in Paul's mind and he sees now that unity and humility 
uh, big ticket items for the people at Philippi uh, and I guess for every church. Paul says, make my joy complete by adding these two things to your church life together. They were doing some things really well. Paul was joyful every time he thought about them in his prayers. They were generous to him. But he said, just add humility and unity and that will make my joy complete. Get rid of any selfish ambition, vain conceit. These two things are the mortal enemies of unity and harmony in the church. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Christian loves sees others, all others, as worthy of our attention and interest. It's never good if we ride roughshod over the opinions of others or behave as though we always know better than everyone else. Or if we are just simply so preoccupied with our own agendas and concerns, we miss opportunities to care for others. We love it, don't we, when others want to know all about us. I know I do. Uh, we went to Dave and Joe's place last night. For those of you that remember Dave and Joe's time here, uh, 40th birthday party for Joe, and it was great to be there. And I was talking to a particular gentleman and uh, I was enjoying myself because he was asking me to tell him all about my own life and I was raving on and until I got to the point where I thought if Carol was here she'd be, so, she'd be asking him questions, what's going on in your life? And just that very thought pulled me up and I asked him a question about himself and uh, I felt good that I'd done it. <laughs> that requires to be a good listener um, the virtue of humility, doesn't it? So that you're not full of yourself and you just pause and you think about others. And I, I can do something here rather than just receive. I might be able to actually give something. From time to time, um, you may hear, and I've certainly heard, someone de described as a person who doesn't suffer fools gladly. Now, is that a compliment or a criticism? You know, there's something good about a person who really knows what's what and can give you strong direction as a good leader, but there's something bad about it too. There's a little lack of humility because I get a bit nervous around such people because I know I make many mistakes and say stupid things sometimes. Uh, your partner, your wife's always there to pull you up, but so, not always. Um, so. Even people that are big, strong, confident people, they need to practice humility too. Humility enables us to see ourselves as we ought and others as we ought. So it's a good thing. And Paul sums it up perfectly in verse 5 when he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same, simple, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And with those words, we're drawn into this inspiring hymn describing the humility of Jesus himself. Let me read the first three verses of this great hymn. These verses describe the humiliation of Jesus Christ, the terrible thing that happened, the humbling of Christ. Not something imposed on Jesus, but his own willing act as our saviour. Paul is saying, if you're trying to get a handle on what humility should look like among you, then think of yourselves the way Jesus thought of himself. He was in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or to be 
grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. To properly understand the humility of Christ, we need to properly understand uh, just who he is and where he came from. Verse 6 begins, who being in very nature God. During the preparation of this sermon, I wrote down 27 verses from the New Testament which refer to the divinity of Christ. I'll mention just two of them. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. There's a lot of superlatives there, aren't there? And there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. We come to another verse shortly where there are just superlatives describing Jesus. Jesus is fully God. He shares the divine nature and he was there with God the Father at the beginning of time before all things. So what was Christ's attitude to his own glory and divinity? Well, verse 7 says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in lowly human likeness. Folks, how astounding is our Christian faith? And was that the full extent of the miracle that the Son of God became fully human? Well, of course not. It's only the beginning, isn't it? Because verse 8 tells us that being found in human appearance, he humbled himself and became even obedient to death and death on a cross. What a God we worship, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. What a gospel we have for the world. Never a day should go by when we don't marvel at the amazing grace and love of our Heavenly Father. Never a day should go by that we don't marvel at the amazing grace and love and humility of Jesus our Saviour. And never a day should go by that we don't marvel at the amazing presence and comfort and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just come back a little from those wonderful heights of this beautiful hymn to Christ. What started out as an illustration to us of what true humility looks like, that is, in the life of Jesus, uh, this illustration is obviously superb and so important that it becomes the subject of our interest by a million times over rather than just a little aside and an illustration of what our humility should look like. In the process of reflecting on the illustration we have been hijacked by the love that Jesus has shown to us by his humble birth and self-sacrificing death. In other words, the illustration is really too good. The illustration is so good that it totally captures our thoughts. And the people of Philippi just take a, a bit of a back seat for a little while until Paul comes back to it and says there's the mindset that we need to have. So when we put together in just a few verses like Paul does, the height 
and glory from which Christ came and the shocking, it is shocking, humiliation that he suffered on the cross because the cross was for someone who was accursed. Crucifixion was the most degrading form of execution that could be inflicted on a person. And folks, I don't know if you've ever imagined yourself at the foot of the cross on that day when Jesus was crucified and looked up into his face and trembled just at the prospect of the Son of God dying in this shocking manner, half naked, stripped of all, uh, of everything the world could take away from him and put him up there nailed to a cross. We should tremble at the suffering of Christ when he bore our sins in his own beloved body so we might be forgiven. And I often think when I think about Jesus' death of a Johnny Cash and June Carter song. Does anyone know Johnny Cash? We all know Johnny Cash. Does anyone know June Carter? Yeah, well, there you are. June Carter was the great lady who really saved Johnny Cash from um, a lot of misery and ruining his life. She was a wonderful Christian lady. And together they then sang this fantastic song called Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. And June Carter sings this whole trill of uh, makes, makes me tremble. And it's a, a spiritually powerful song. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's not a bad thing uh, to go down that little passage and tremble at the terrible suffering of Christ and, be, and show gratitude for the love that he has shown for you and your sins. Well, the illustration that Paul uses here is nothing less than, I guess, the supreme illustration of all time. It is the greatest act of humility the world has ever known, the incarnation, meaning literally God in the flesh, came and dwelt among us. Well, um, Paul could have used a different illustration. Can you think of any other illustrations of Jesus' humility? Uh, the obvious one perhaps is washing the feet of the disciples. Uh, could he use that? But if he did, we wouldn't have this fantastic hymn of the humility of Jesus. We could have used the humble entry of Jesus on the donkey into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Uh, what a humble thing to be doing. There is a verse in Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, you daughters of Zion. Shout! you daughters of, of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, humble and riding on a donkey. All those years before, it was prophesied, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The lowly animal of peace. And in the very next verse, Zechariah contrasts the donkey with a war horse. Jesus didn't come in that kind of powerful image of a war horse but riding in humility on the colt of a donkey and I can never reflect on that triumphal entry of Christ into the holy city without being reminded um, of a poem called The Donkey by G.K. Chesterton um, did anyone know of that anyone read that poem aware of it you don't know what you're missing. I've, got a lot, I've had a lot of joy out of that poem, I'll tell you. And I'm only going to read it 
through to you now, but there's a lot to think about in that poem. poem. Donkeys are extraordinary creatures, and G.K. Chesterton had this fantastic ability um, to capture so beautifully, so cleverly, through this lowly donkey, the humility of Jesus Christ, uh, as well as the triumph of Christ the King. It's a, it's a great little thing. Look it up later and read it through. Now, let me read it to you. And just remember as I do this that it is the donkey who is speaking. It says this, When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry, and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb, but I keep my secret still, fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet, there was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. It's a great little poem. It's good for Palm Sunday, but as I said this morning, I like it every Sunday. Uh, there's a lot in it worth thinking about. Now, whether Paul is quoting a hymn of his own day or writing his own brilliant prose, we don't we're not certain, but we can be certain that the whole of Christendom is thankful to God that our Bible contains this timeless, concise summary of God's wonderful plan. And in dealing with this first half of chapter 2, we have to do two things. We've got to treat these verses as they were, as they were intended, as an illustration to ourselves of what humility should look like. The humility of Christ, we are to take heart and we need to have the same mindset. That's the first thing. And then we also need to allow ourselves to be hijacked by the brilliance of these verses and by the sheer weight and depth of the theology contained in this illustration. It is the amazing humility of Christ which led to our forgiveness. But there's more to come. The humbling of Jesus was not just an illustration as to how we should live our lives. The obedience and self-sacrificing death of Jesus on the cross was our very salvation. For the Philippians, for you, for me, there is not the slightest hope of heaven if Jesus had not taken our sin into his own body and died in our place, thus setting us free from the judgment to come and death. This was God's plan of eternal salvation for all who believe in his son Jesus. And because Jesus humbled himself so faithfully and fulfilled his life-saving work on the cross, his humiliation, Paul tells us in verses 9 to 11, therefore, now just again, here's the passage I mentioned earlier, note the superlatives, they make this so powerful. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Nothing that you can imagine could be a higher place than that to which Christ was exalted. And he gave him the name that is above every name. 
And the kids came and stood up here this morning with Camille and they had Jesus on one side and their own name on the other and they were enacting these beautiful little verses. And when they read this verse, gave him the name that is above every name, they held their names up, Jesus' name is above my name. It just was quite powerful this morning. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. No exceptions. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, as we just finish up, let me leave these challenges with you. Be an encourager, be a comforter, share your life in the Spirit, show tenderness and compassion. And in our church relationships, humility and unity, yes, Pride and grumbling, no. And in today's increasingly negative culture towards Christianity, take heart, stand your ground, because the time is coming when at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful passage, isn't it? And 